every car that came through had multiple bullet holes from sniper fire. And I was just amazed when they would arrive in Zaporizhia, how they were actually still alive. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Ahmed Khan, has been described as a direct action philanthropist. He does not use that term himself, but after listening to our conversation, I think you will agree that the moniker fits. He goes to the front lines of humanitarian crises pretty much on his own and uses his personal wealth and networks to deliver whatever the communities say they need. This can range from washing machines to water pumps to prosthetics to plane tickets to money for gas, pretty much anything you can imagine, he has found a way to deliver it to affected populations in war zones and crises. For the past year and a half, Ahmed Khan has been in Ukraine, near the front lines of fighting in places like Bakhmut. When we spoke, he had just returned from Kherson, which experienced catastrophic flooding following the sabotage of a major dam upstream. We kick off discussing how he got into this line of work in general and to Ukraine in particular. As he explains, he has a long history in Ukraine, but more recently worked closely with Ukrainian special forces to help rescue Afghans as Kabul fell to the Taliban. And this, of course, was just months before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And just one quick note before we start, we are rolling out our new podcast homepage at globaldispatches.org. There you can find our entire podcast archive, as well as new issues of the Global Dispatches newsletter. If you've not done so already, please sign up for our mailing list at globaldispatches.org. And while you're there, of course, you can use the contact button to get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people I should interview, topics I should cover, or anything else that's on your mind. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Ahmed Khan, a Frontlines philanthropist. So, Ahmed, I've seen you described as a direct action philanthropist. I have not heard that term before. What does it mean to you? Well, it took me by surprise also because it sort of makes sense, though. I think 
it reflects that I go to places and do the work myself, not only sort of fund it. Philanthropy, I suppose, means lover of humankind. But in the modern age with unfettered capitalism, philanthropy sort of has turned into a Silicon Valley billionaires studying how they can live longer. So I suppose direct action philanthropist reflects that I, uh, on the projects that I work on over the years in Syria and Iraq, Afghanistan, now Ukraine means I'm in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Ukraine. So I do want to discuss your work in Ukraine, but I'm interested in learning your background, how you became a direct action philanthropist. Not your words, I should say. This is not how you has <laughs> right. to have described yourself, but right. it's how I've seen you described in, in other media reports. So like prior to Ukraine, what was your experience in humanitarian work? How did you get into humanitarianism? Shortly after college, I uh, worked on the uh, Clinton for President campaign, 92. And after the campaign, I uh, worked at the United States Peace Corps. Like a political appointee? A political appointee, yeah, for the director of the Peace Corps. It was Carol Bellamy at the time. And I spent about a year and a half there also as the White House liaison. And I quickly decided I needed to get out in the world. And by hook or by crook, I convinced people to get me a job at the International Rescue Committee and wound up living on the Rwanda-Burundi-Tanzania border looking after about a million refugees from Rwanda. That was sort of my first time staying overseas. I think I was 23 at the time. Mm. And this is pre-internet. There was no electricity, no running water. And uh, I spent about a year and a half. I sort of loved it. So <laughs> I only came back because my mom was really worried. <laughs> you know, there were no phones or anything. So by the time I was 25, I had already spent a year plus in government, a year plus for a large international NGO. But I really wanted to sort of do things my way. So I had to come up with some strategy to do that. And what was that strategy? I mean, because, you know, the IRC is like a large, prestigious, very well-regarded international humanitarian agency. And, you know, the refugee crisis in which you worked on, it was like one of the largest in the world. I mean, people aren't aware of this, but, you know, back then, Tanzania was like the host of the largest number of refugees in the world and was for quite a long time after that. So what was like the plan for you then? You know, it was, it's a great organization and, you know, they all do the best they can. But in my specific circumstance, I thought I was a bit more entrepreneurial. So I, I figured that I had to sort of make some money at some point if I wanted to do this on my terms, but it wasn't like immediate. So I went back into government actually, then joined another a conservation NGO and moved back to Africa for another couple of years. But at some point I got into investing as sort of a hobby, like, I had the skill set, right? Like, but I don't want to work on Wall Street for some place like Goldman Sachs or something. I just found that tedious and abhorrent. So I just became a private investor, got lucky a few times, which is really what it is. It's sort of luck. <laughs> and eventually you made enough money to fund your own philanthropic endeavors. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any boats or beach houses or mountain houses or any of that other stuff that a lot of people seem to love, you know, I'm, <laughs> some, some titan. But I think, you know, if you want to live a meaningful life and a purposeful life, this is a good thing to do. So you had mentioned working in Syria, in Afghanistan, and most recently you're in Ukraine. Like, What were the circumstances in which you first went to Ukraine? And like, what did you seek to do? Well, I have a background in Ukraine. So actually, in my first trip was in uh, 2005, shortly after President Yushchenko became president after the Orange Revolution, one of the colored revolutions. 
And President Yushchenko had invited former President Clinton at the time to uh, come and you know give him some advice. So I sort of was invited to tag along on the trip and made some lifelong friends back then, and, and were just remarkably uh, taken by the people, the passion, the energy. I mean, it was remarkable what they did. They took to the streets. They risked their lives. They lost lives. Yeah, I mean, basically, they were yearning to breathe free, you know, sort of everything that I had uh, studied and lived. They were sort of living that, and I, I was just so impressed. I've been back, I'd say, almost every year since 2005, trying to help wherever I could. Because it's a long, long, long project getting out from under the Russian, then Soviet, then again Russian yoke. They seek to undermine their fledgling democracy since they became a state. You know, they had people in all government ministries reporting to the Kremlin not to Kiev. So I, I thought it was, you know, a worthwhile endeavor. Most recently, I was doing evacuations from Kabul for people who had worked for the United States government in August of 2021. What do you mean doing evacuations for people in Kabul? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah we all, of course, remember the August 2021 frantic withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan and all of the accompanying civilians who had been kind of caught up in the maelstrom. What was your sort of distinct role in that period? I sponsored the application of two children of a former USAID employee. And she hadn't been able to make it on uh, one of the U.S. Air Force planes. She had the paperwork. So I decided to just go to Kabul myself and try and get her out. She couldn't make it on the planes. And at the time, since I'm in Kabul, I start getting requests from everyone I've ever heard of. You know, you have to help this one. She worked with me at the State Department. You have to help with this one. She worked with me at the DOJ. And in that process, I got a number of people on the planes, but there's two little girls I hadn't been able to get out. So as the U.S. was winding up, through an old friend, I made contact with President Zelensky's office. So I actually flew to Kiev, uh, I think, August 28th, and then flew back with Ukrainian special forces who were doing evacuations of any Afghan who held a Ukrainian passport, which I found you know, remarkable, because really not a lot of people were holding their weight. And the experience in Kabul was beyond belief. The actual Ukrainian special forces went into Kabul, which no other groups really did. They were sort of behind the line inside the airport. And I just gave them a list of names, including those kids. And we went and got them and flew them to Kiev. And then after that, I went on to charter six or seven planes from Kabul during the course of September, October, taking former Afghan women MPs, judges, activists. And so that was like your most immediate prior kind of direct action philanthropic humanitarian work before Ukraine. What were the circumstances in which you first came to Ukraine? Was it presumably after the February 2022 invasion? You know, the administration in Kiev had asked me to help if I could make sure people were aware that there was an impending Russian invasion. So during the course of October, November, December of 2021, I tried whatever I could. Obviously, we failed because the invasion happened. And in February, again, it's one of those things, a friend is sort of frantic trying to evacuate. And I said, okay, I'm just going to come there and, and get you out. So I actually drove in February 26th and got the friend out and then started to uh, assist wherever I could and however I could. So I suppose since the invasion, I've been inside the country about 400 days and mostly at or near the front lines. 
And I know we're speaking while you're in the United States, but just like a few days ago, you returned. So you had sent me, I think, photos you had sent uh, from flooded Harrison. So early, you know, during like the early parts of the conflict, how did you sort of see your role in like the broader international response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, I just was trying to do whatever needed to be done. The truth is, since I've actually been in Ukraine the entire time, I, I kind of, I don't even remember most of it. I'd have to sort of decompress at some point in my life and, and write everything down. But the immediate need was evacuations from Mariupol, which mm-hmm. was under Russian occupation and a sort of really brutal occupation. So I found volunteer drivers and literally just paid for the gas for them. And they would run this gauntlet to a city called Zaporizhia, where the nuclear power plant is. And it was, interestingly enough, sort of negotiated as a sort of green corridor. But every car that came through had multiple bullet holes from sniper fire. And I was just amazed when they would arrive in Zaporizhia, how they were actually still alive. I mean, some people we did lose, but, you know, the cars made it through. And I remember the parking lot in Zaporizhia of the cars that would come in on these convoys, and every single one of them had multiple bullet holes. So that was one of the first things. Shortly thereafter, I went to Bucha and Erpin, probably within two days of its liberation, mm-hmm. and witnessed mass graves and talked to locals and trying to figure out what they need and got them immediate supplies the locals who had survived the occupation and heard their stories and worked with local groups. And Bucha, for those who are not familiar, was a site of really horrendous, like mass atrocity event and war crimes committed by Russians against Ukrainian civilians. It is one of like the worst sort of war crime event thus far of the entire war. And, and you were there just in the immediate aftermath, you're saying. The pit behind the church was open with bodies before the bodies were exhumed out. So it was literally uh, within 48 hours of liberation. We obviously passing checkpoints and there's still Russian snipers in the woods. And I thought it was important to be there before the masses, just to understand what happened there, to talk to the people uh, who survived it, to go to their homes, to see with my own eyes what actually happened there and, and hear their stories. And As the news came out, I think it was the event that changed even Ukrainians' view of how the war should be handled, how the invasion should be handled. I think prior to that information coming out, probably Ukrainians were just wanted to get this war stopped and maybe even were willing to lose territory. Mm -hmm. But after what was perpetrated on them there, it's tough to forgive. Mm -hmm. And as you noted It's also something that makes, I think, Ukrainians reluctant to concede territory in exchange for a cessation of hostilities, precisely because of what happened, what they witnessed of what Russians did in territory occupied by Russian troops, if briefly, at the time. I guess I'm I'm curious to learn how you sort of see your role as distinct from other philanthropies or aid groups or even like the government. I mean, it sounds like you are working closely with the government, but you're distinct from the government. How do you sort of distinguish what your unique role is from that of what one might expect from, say, the Ukrainian government? You know, I'm, I'm in touch with the government that don't necessarily work together. What I, I think I do and what's kind of, I think, unique about Ukraine, and I let's say I've been to 185 countries in the world and probably worked in 60 of them. And 
something that exists in Ukraine is the society that can self-organize and solve any problem. So in the view of the typical Ukrainian citizen, they're just hoping that the government isn't, you know, a parasite. It protects them. It doesn't take away from them. And I think that's what the bright future of Ukraine holds. So I sort of just tap in to that society with a little bit of resources and a little bit of knowledge, but they know what needs to be done. And I can give you any number of examples of that. And so for most recent would be in the flood ravaged villages after the uh, destruction of the Novokohovka Dam. The West Bank is controlled by Ukraine. The East Bank is controlled by the Russians, occupied by the Russians. So I go into these villages and you meet civilians immediately and they're very clear. They work together and they see what's coming in from various volunteer groups. And again, all the resources and all the supplies are, are led by essentially volunteer groups. The government is mostly focused on protecting the land and you know now the counteroffensive, but I mean, it doesn't really have the resources to do this. And the large agencies are basically non-existent. So I just sort of tap in and say, look, what haven't you gotten today that you need today? You know, actually the answer today was washing machines. So I sourced, uh, you know, 50 washing machines. So it can be anything from generators to washing machines to water pumps in the flood situation, power banks. And I think that's sort of what I've done throughout the war in various places. So I've probably have about, I think the current number is 102 projects, but they all are nothing that I sort of invented or some brilliant idea of mine. They were all sort of self-organized, community-driven plans, and they're executed by them, you know, in sort of light partnership with me, but they know what they're doing. And this is, I find this very unique. Do you have like a a staff? Is it just you? I have a a number of uh, Ukrainian uh, volunteer staff. I pay them all enough to eat and have a place to live. One thing that this makes me think is, have you sort of thought through or is there like a way to systematize this sort of thing to scale up in a way the kind of work that you do as one person, an innovative person, a person of like unique set of skill sets, like you're kind of sweet generous, it sounds like. But is there a way to sort of expand your work beyond you being one guy doing these very discreet humanitarian initiatives? I don't think there is. And I've thought about that. But, you know, you would lose the quality of service, the quality of product. And that's without trashing anyone. Like That's what happens with the international NGOs. It's sort of like, you know, they have a good person somewhere and there's good work and then they have a bad person somewhere and there's bad work. And I want to make sure that every project that I'm involved with is excellent and executed to the highest level. And it's what I sort of personally can handle. So I don't know that it's really realistic in these sort of circumstances, you know, where if something goes wrong, it's not good, right? Like it's not something you can recover from and you cause damage. So I don't necessarily know, like I would love other people with means to do this kind of thing, but I don't, see that jumping into the fray uh you know that would be the easiest thing i'd love people to say hey i could buy some of this stuff and it happens i mean i have a few friends who are saying to me like look uh you're there i'd love to help with something and you know what can i purchase what's needed and that's good but like i don't know that i could build this massive organization that would actually meet these needs to the level that i expect them to be met 
So you're back in the States now. Do you plan on returning to Ukraine anytime soon? And you know, what's next for you and your work? Yeah, I'll be back uh, within a week or so. Oh, this is a quick trip. Yeah, yeah they all are. I, I never, I'm never out for more than five to eight days or so. And you know, I already have a schedule for when I uh, return. It's meeting with the various projects that we support or implement. What's your plan for when you return to Ukraine? Like, what are your key priorities? Continuing with the flood recovery is one. Another one is an orphanage that I repaired after a Russian rocket attack. There's a seven-year-old gymnast that lost a leg and we took care of her prosthetics. So I want to visit her. Finding out needs in a couple of other newly liberated villages. So my focus has been trying to help in newly liberated villages because the people have gone without anything. So I have some standard packages, generators and household supplies, clothes that will deliver to newly liberated villages. And these villages are flattened, but some of the people are still there, which is unbelievable. But that's sort of where I'll be. I'll be in the east somewhere just behind the front. What compels you to keep going back and keep going to frontline humanitarian crisis and, and frankly, front lines of, of the conflict as well? It's a very worthwhile way to spend your time. <laughs> and at this point, I'm so deeply invested in, in this situation that I have to see it through. I'm so deeply intertwined with so many people at this point, and they're counting on you know our partnership. So there's just no way to turn my back on it. I just, you know, from a larger perspective, I, I think it's just very important. You know, I don't think it's hyperbole to say, you know, freedom is at stake. The Ukrainian people are people who are kind and gentle and just want to live free and they risk their lives for it. So I just think it's truly the most important thing uh, in my lifetime, I think. Do you have like enough money to keep on operating at the kind of level at which you're operating for the foreseeable future? Are you, are you trying to raise funds as well? No, I don't raise money um, because I like to do stuff that I like to do. And uh, so I use my money. And But, you know, I, obviously I have some friends that will join up. Uh, you know, I don't ask anybody, but they'll, they'll call me all the time and say, look, how can I help? So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I don't, again, I don't, I'm like a anti-consumerist. I don't really own anything <laughs> or want to own anything. So, you know, I'm sure people have like 20 boats that <laughs> cost more than uh, than any of this stuff because it's not really that expensive. I think, you know, I probably spent, a, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how much, but you know, around 10 or 15, maybe $20 million and gotten donations and donated supplies of a few hundred million, I'd guess. And it's important stuff. So there's no real turning back on it. I guess part of my motivation for asking that question was that I have to imagine a number of people listening to our conversation are probably inspired by the kind of work you do. How can they help if they want to? And we're not like a general audience. We're kind of policy people who listen to this show. But I have to imagine there are those who, who just want to help you somehow. What can they do? No, they can just call me up. I mean, like literally, that's what happens. <laughs> People just call up and say, uh, I'd love to help, you know, sort of Ukrainian civilians survive this devastation. I say, well, you could do this or you could do that. Or, yeah, I'm happy to talk to anyone at any time, really. It's, you know, 99% of my uh, day and night. And I think this is the most important thing anyone 
can do, and the needs the needs are endless. You know, the government can't meet all the needs, and certainly even the entire West can't meet all the needs because the devastation is beyond belief. Reconstruction is somewhere around six hundred billion at this point. You know, I've been to at this point hundreds and or maybe thousands of schools, hospitals, playgrounds, shopping malls, apartment buildings destroyed. Well, Ahmed, thank you so much for your time and you know, for the work that you do. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>